Winning at any cost is a wink and a nod to doing whatever it takes to get the job done. It speaks to a work ethic that encourages persistence and creativity. But as my next guest experienced firsthand, it can also cause people to lose sight of what's right and wrong. His is the case of a sales superstar who ended up pleading guilty to a criminal conspiracy charge, landing a 26-month jail sentence along with an order of restitution. And when we come back, we'll learn more about how winning at any cost can lead good people to do bad things. This is Business Confidential Now with Hannah Hassel-Kelchner, helping you see business issues hiding in plain view that matter to your bottom line. Welcome to Business Confidential Now, the weekly podcast for smart executives, managers, and entrepreneurs looking to improve business performance and their bottom line. I'm your host, Hannah Hassel-Kelschner, and I have a fascinating guest for you today. He's Alec Berlikoff. He's a sales trainer, coach, and motivational speaker who's also the author of the book, Selling, Hard Lessons Learned. His book is a true story detailing his two-decade rise and then fall as a sales superstar in the pharmaceutical industry, and how, as the former head of sales at Insys, he was instrumental in selling a fentanyl spray that was approved by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration for cancer patients already taking opioids who are experiencing the sharp pangs of what's also known as breakthrough pain. Uh, What happened next at Insys was the subject of a joint investigative reporting by the Financial Times and the PBS series Frontline. And in a nutshell, it was this. By targeting doctors who were not oncologists to write prescriptions for the off-label use of the drug, by establishing a quid pro quo speaker honorarium program for doctors willing to write prescriptions valued at more than double those of the speaking fees, and then by creating a billing scheme to deceive insurance companies to pay a higher reimbursement rate for the drug when prescribed to non-cancer patients, the company and many of its top executives, including today's guest, found themselves in serious legal hot water. Hundreds of deaths have also been reportedly linked to this drug. Now, before you judge Alec Berlikoff too harshly, please remember, he did plead guilty to the crime and he did the time. He has paid his debt to society and is making restitution. My goal in having him join us today is to learn more about the culture that created and supported his behavior because the philosophy of winning at any cost is not unusual. And it begs the question, could it happen to you or me? What red flag should we be looking for? So let's have him join us now to learn more. Welcome to Business Confidential Now, Alec. Hey, Hannah. How are you? Thanks so much for having me on the show, giving me an opportunity to talk with you and, of course, your listeners. It's great to be here. It's good to have you, Alec. I really think you have an amazing story and a lot that we can learn. I read that you started your career in education and as a guidance counselor. What made you shift gears and move into sales? To get right to the point, I shifted gears and got into sales because I had come to the conclusion, regretfully, that I didn't feel like I was going to make enough money in education. My wife was pregnant with our first child. Uh, I felt the pressures mounting. I was also working as the guidance counselor in a very affluent private school, and I was surrounded by money, and I wanted. One quick story that kind of propelled me to make that leap 
after a lot of thought and consideration prior to that, I was monitoring the carpool lane. There was a man in there driving a Bentley convertible, smoking a cigar. We had a non-smoking policy on campus. I went out there and politely asked him to put the cigar out, explained to him why. And he took another puff and blew it in my face and said, petty rules from petty people. It was really at that time where I decided no more. I just cannot uh, allow myself to be put in a position where people will talk down to me and you know, think little of me because of who I am and what kind of money I was making. Obviously, at this point in my life, I realized that my thought process was all wrong. But that is what led me away from school, education, guidance counseling, coaching, basketball, into the fast world of sales, specifically pharmaceuticals in my case. So it was really the disrespect that you felt when he acted that way. Yeah. I mean, unfortunately for me, respect was huge. Growing up as a kid, you know, middle school, high school, college, you know, I was always very comfortable in my own skin, very social, led, you know, many groups and, and functions and was very active in my fraternity. And, you know, respect was never an issue. But once I got into the real world, quote unquote, it seemed as if lack of money was directly correlated with lack of respect and my lack of self and that inner confidence and insecurity that I had clearly at that moment in time allowed me to succumb to outside pressures. Okay. I understand. So let's talk about that transition into selling for a pharmaceutical company. What kind of training was provided to you? So with my first company, Eli Lilly out of Indianapolis, which is you know a major player in the industry, the training was quite extensive. It was eight weeks, you know, kind of in Indianapolis, then home, then back in Indianapolis, and so forth, with a number of tests, one right after the other each day. If you didn't score a certain grade on those tests, you would pack your bags and go home. So the training was really, really extensive, which, you know, kudos to Eli Lilly. I can tell you that I never had training that came even remotely close to that in positions that I took down the road. And then, you know, on the other side of the spectrum at Insys, when I joined and many reps and managers joined at one point, there really was no training whatsoever, just maybe getting some information in the mail. So a complete paradigm shift as far as that's concerned. But my training at Lilly, just the eight weeks and then the three-month school training and nine-month school, just that little bit of time was a thousand times more difficult than anything I'd ever come across in college as well as graduate school. Well, I'm glad to hear that they had a, a rigorous program that you you went through, and obviously you you sailed through it beautifully, or you wouldn't have have completed that and moved on. I'm curious about how much they talked about compliance, because after all, pharmaceutical is a very heavily regulated industry. Tell me a little bit more about that. Well, with regards to compliance, quite frankly, there was very little said. You would hear whispers. You know, there would be someone that would come in and do a quick talk on compliance. But, you know, 95% of all training was sales, how to obtain sales, how to grow the business, uh, how to increase the numbers. That's the training. I mean, you're being hired as a salesperson and the training is sales training. The way they kind of interwoven compliance was done so that you kind of came away with this is really not that important because it was just an afterthought. 
And then, you know, with every company, they give you a piece of paper from time to time, you know, and tell you to sign it like right before the meeting is starting. So, you know, you're honestly, you don't even read it. You just sign it because, you know, if you don't, you're not going to continue to be employed there, but they don't expect you to read it or pay any true attention to it. That's my experience. That's your experience. And and then after you left Eli Lilly, it sounds like there was even less emphasis put on the compliance piece of your job. Is that right? Yes. Compliance became less and less as we began to take on more responsibility and higher roles in the sales. Basically, like with Eli Lilly, when you start as a rep, you start as an entry-level rep, which means you're calling on primary care physicians. You know, they practice family medicine, internal medicine. And then once you do well and get promoted, then you call on specialty doctors, whether it be a psychiatrist, a neurologist, physiatrist, anesthesiologist, whatever the specialty might be. And then hopefully, you know, if you if you're truly ambitious, you know, you'll be promoted to management and then move your way up from there. You know, many people are very happy being a sales rep and they do it for a career and they do, you know, they're very, they do wonderfully. For me, unfortunately, I don't know why or where exactly this came from, but once I got into pharmaceuticals, that Excel spreadsheet came out on a monthly basis with whatever number of reps they had, 500, 750, 1,000. I got it in my head that if I wasn't at the top of that list, literally number one, that I was a failure. And again, the respect thing and so forth. So for me, you know, I worked feverishly on a daily basis to ensure that I was doing everything necessary within my means to make myself number one in the company. Well, I'm, I'm interested. I mean, I understand you're working hard to make these connections and, and make the sales with these doctors and these, these organizations. But I'm curious about the messages that you received from the organization that led to some of the creativity that caused problems at INSYS. How did you know it was okay to do that? Well, to say it was okay is, is a, a bold statement. It would be accepted to say that it would be not noticed, unrecognized, not, not something that was serious in their minds. Meaning, like in your intro, you said it perfectly. It's just a means to an end. They want the numbers. They want the sales results. And if I can tell you, if you're number one in the company, you're not getting fired. Now, if you're number 500 out of 500 and you're doing something that's not okay, they might make an example of you and let you go because, quite frankly, it doesn't cost them anything. And it's an excuse to get rid of somebody that's not producing. But if you're producing, you're almost untouchable. So that's kind of the mindset that you learn very quickly. I mean, pharmaceuticals and sales was around way before I came about. And of course, anyone that wants to be successful, they want to surround themselves with successful people. They want to know who the top guy is, who are the top five, who are the top 10. And I did that. You know, I met with them. I spoke with them. I interrogated them. And I learned very quickly all the, the practices that they were imploring to help make them successful. Now, I'm sure that many, many people in the sales force were aware of those same things that those top producers were doing and made a decision to themselves. No, I'm not going to do that. I don't want to be a part of that. I'm fine with being in the top 50%. Nobody bothers me. They leave me alone. I make a nice living. 
but for me, you know, I wanted to know what they were doing so that I could do it and even do it at a more egregious level so that I could be number one. I thought that being successful meant being the best. I thought from my upbringing, since I was a little child, that in the end of the day, you know, if you're not first, you're last, you know, being second is for losers. You know, I was given all these messages as a child my entire life. And I took those messages with me throughout my career. And it's just, it's mind boggling. It's alarming how, you know, the messages that you receive as a child growing up can transfer into, you know, your adult life and can mold your behaviors. You know, I remember being on the plane when I was going to training in Eli Lilly and I sat next to a rep who, who already had experience, came from another company. And we kind of talked and we hit it off. We had a beer and he said, Al, you want to know how to be successful? You want to know how this business is done? I said, yeah, of course. He says, pay speakers. You find a doctor that wants to champion your medication is, you know, supposedly some sort of thought leader. And you pay them to speak to his peers. And you'll find that once you start paying him, he will start writing a whole lot more. And you get three or four or five of those guys, and you'll find yourself at the top of the company. So, you know, not something that I learned or created. It was just something that that I adopted. And, you know, shame on me for not having, you know, the fortitude to say right then and there, oh, yeah, that's not going to be for me. But let me try it out. Let me try my way out in pharmaceuticals see if I can still, you know, maintain my job and my salary and so forth and be content with just being, you know, in the middle. Unfortunately, that, that wasn't me. I was nothing but miserable if the numbers came out and I wasn't at the top of the board. So the ends justified the means. Does that sound fair? At that point in time, yes, that sounds fair. Now, is that right? A hundred percent. No, it's wrong. I did a lecture yesterday at the University of Washington. They asked me the same question. My take on that is, if someone is telling you that they don't want to know how you got there and how you did it, that they just want the results and the sales and the numbers, then that's a red flag. That means that they they truly don't have the integrity necessary to be a leader. You know, a real leader wants to know, you know, exactly what's going on. Now, in my case at Insys, my leader did know exactly what was going on. He understood that this was the standard in the industry, and so he wanted to exceed that standard. And so if another company was paying a position 100000 he wanted to pay him 300000 You know, that was the strategy. Okay, this is what's going on. Not only are we going to pay, but we're going to pay more. And that's partly what we did. You know, I had so many opportunities to say, you know, enough is enough. You know, there's lines that I crossed. And for whatever reason, I was able to be comfortable crossing those lines. But now this is a line that I've never crossed. And this is a line that I'm uncomfortable. And instead of walking away, I forced myself to get comfortable enough to do something that was very uncomfortable. And that's on me. Well, you know, it's interesting that you talked about how you got comfortable because it it sounds like deep inside you knew that, well, wait a minute, this is outside your comfort zone and 
the encouragement, and I'm going to put encouragement in quotation marks, air quotes here, <laughs> Okay. That, that you got from your leadership, is that what gave you, you thought, cover? Is that what allowed you to compromise and say, well, if he says it's okay, then we're going to go with it. What's the worst that could happen? Listen, I was working for a true billionaire. I mean, he was in Forbes magazine as the top 50. So I told myself on so many occasions, Alec, you have wanted to play in the sandbox with the big guys your whole life. You're in it. And you didn't know what it was like to be in that sandbox. You're just finding out now for the first time. And either you get comfortable and play or you literally change your entire mindset that you thought you had your entire life. So, you know, I forced myself to play in a sandbox that I've never been in before. And I convinced myself that if this man is a billionaire, clearly, you know, he knows what it takes and he's been doing this his entire career. And that I thought that he would have the necessary measures and safety rails in place to protect, but I was wrong. And again, it's, this is not the place blame because I am culpable. I am responsible. I pled guilty. It's my fault. And that's a message that I would want to pass along to everyone that until you get comfortable with yourself and your own skin, until you can wake up every morning and look in the mirror and say, I feel good about myself. I like myself. There's, you know, I'm, I'm not weak. I'm strong. I'm not insecure, meaning that I cannot be bullied or negatively influenced by others, then I'm in a place where I can really, truly make good decisions for myself. And the fact of the matter is, is I was just the opposite. You know, I was insecure. I was weak. I was begging for guidance and direction from a leader. I thought that I had chosen a great mentor based on one thing and one thing only, the amount of money he had in his bank account. So again, I was dead wrong. I, I selected my mentor for all the wrong reasons. I had all the wrong criteria in place. You know, it was a recipe for disaster. I was a recipe for disaster. And that's exactly what happened. That's a great way to summarize, you know, how the wheels came off. The selection of your mentor, you know, the, your strength within, which you felt somewhat insecure. Because I, I can also imagine that there are some people who get asked to do some things that Oh, maybe they're not 100% comfortable with, but, oh, it's just to get us through this quarter or just to get us over the hump here. And so they compromise and they don't realize, you know, what personal risk they're putting themselves in at that particular moment. And and maybe it's a risk worth taking. And, you know, that's an individual type of decision. But I'm curious, Alec, when did you realize that you might have personal criminal liability in this situation? So I started with Insys in 2012, and I think around mid-2013, 2014, I came to that realization. And I was the vice president of sales. There was a vice president of marketing that I worked with at another company. He also became aware. He pulled me aside and said, you know, I'm packing my bags. I'm leaving. You should do the same, Alec. And I said, no, no, no. You, you, you know, we got to toughen up. You know, we got to ride this out. We got to be leaders. You know, this is a tremendous opportunity for us. And leaders, you know, they work their way through these challenges. You don't think that, you know, the owner of this company or any other 
multimillionaire or billionaire has been faced with these types of challenges. This is how they got there. This is how they did it. You know, we got to toughen up. We got to persevere. You know, it was rationalization, right? I was just convincing myself, you know, to take that risk, you know, as opposed to walking. You know, you mentioned the word compromise. There's no room for compromise when you're talking about business and ethics, because once you start compromising and blurring those lines, the lines start to move further and further away from you and you start chasing them. You know, the real leader, you know, basically he plans with the end in mind. He knows exactly what he's going to do, how he's going to do it. And he understands, you know, the way in which he's going to go about doing it as far as integrity and ethics are concerned. For me, I was planning with the end in mind and never once did I really think about ethics and integrity. I was thinking about money and power. And there were times where I, I had moments of weakness, if you will, or maybe I was just being human and I heard, you know, a negative story about a patient and so forth and so on through the grapevine or even in the paper. And I would raise a question to, you know, my boss or my boss's boss. And they would always just kind of jump down my throat and say, Alec, you know, what are you doing? Like stay in your lane. Like you're in sales. This is none of your business. This is a clinical type of question, this, that, and the other. We have our medical affairs people dealing with it. You've got to stay in your lane. You've got to continue to lead. And if people start to see doubt or hesitance in you, then they will follow. And we cannot have that. So, again, I would kept telling myself, be a leader, Alec. You know, keep going. Keep moving forward. Keep getting rid of all these distractions that are potentially going to bog you down when in reality – had I grabbed onto those distractions and really took a deeper dive into what was happening and made it my business to know, perhaps I would have, you know, made better decisions moving forward. But, you know, to be clear, at that moment in time, it was already too late. I had already sealed my fate. You know, there was no walking away. Well, let me ask you this, Alec. I mean, I understand that Insys is a much smaller company than, say, an Eli Lilly, but didn't they have any people who had their eye on, on compliance issues or legal issues? I mean, where were they? <laughs> Great question. I mean, I'm convinced that had we had a real compliance and legal department, and your listeners might be appalled by this, but I also just want to be candid. Otherwise, what am I doing here? Had we had a real legal department in place, you know, there would have been stops put in place and we would have ended up probably paying a very hefty fine. And we would have had a probably a CIA corporate integrity agreement that we would have had to work under. And it would have been very stringent rules and regulations and monetization that we would have been working under moving forward. For the first year I was at INSIS, we had no legal department or compliance at all. The only thing we had was an HR manager. And the HR manager had not even obtained her master's degree yet. Uh, she did eventually do so and, and so forth. But at that point in time, we were so lean and mean. I had never been a part of anything like this in my life. And there were times, and it wasn't me. I can't, I can't say it was me. Because part of me was happy we didn't have a compliance and legal department. The other part of me was concerned because I'm like, oh, my God, we have no protection here. 
But there were others in the company that did raise questions and say, why? We've got to have legal in here. We've got to have compliance. And the owner of the company said, I, no, no. He's like, I'm not paying lawyers. Like, I can, there's nothing they can do for me that I can't do myself. I've done this with numerous companies. You know, we're lean and mean. We don't need that right now. You know, maybe one day. So, no, we didn't have anything for the first year. And, you know, not only for myself should I have seen a tremendous red flag in an industry that's so heavily regulated, but for everyone coming on board, right, the reps, the managers, directors, you know, it was a disservice to everyone. It sounds sounds like the head of the company just didn't want anybody walking in, you know, to create the stops that you were talking about a, a moment ago, um, because it would just be in their way. <laughs> when in reality, it's like, please let them help you stay out of jail. Yeah. I mean, to be fair, you know, like, again, I was thinking, hmm, maybe this is a good thing. Obviously, we know now that had we had all those measures taken and, and people in place, yeah, maybe the sales wouldn't have been as good. And I know they wouldn't have been, not even close. And maybe I would have gotten fired as the head of sales because we weren't meeting the numbers that, that he wanted us to meet. And so what? So I would have gotten fired. Like compared to what I actually ended up having take place, which again, I deserved, you know, it would have been nothing. I would have you know, I, looking back, I, I wish I hoped and prayed that I would have gotten fired and, and walked away. In fact, the vice president of sales that was in place before I came aboard, you know, they parted ways. And I'm sure it was not amicable. And I'm sure he thinks every day, what a blessing. Well, I'm wondering, Alec, you know, you talked about how, you know, the, the list of sales reps and you wanted to be the, the number one person. And there's nothing wrong with being competitive and wanting to be number one. I think people encourage and certainly admire the drive that and the work that it takes to, to go in there. But I'm wondering whether you think the commission-based structure created a little bit of a conflict of interest between the reps and the organization, where they're more interested in doing whatever it takes to be that number one or be in the top 20, 50, or however you want to measure it, as opposed to looking out for the best interests of the company? 100%, not even 99%, 100%. You know, we were selling a Schedule II opioid, fentanyl, in the middle of an opioid pandemic. There's no place for commissions or carrots to be dangled in front of salespeople to obtain those commissions. Because in the end of the day, the only person that matters or should matter is the patient. And if you are incentivizing sales reps to move business, then they're going to do things just out of being a human being that are not directly in line with the patient's best interest. Not that they're going to go out there and proactively try to harm the patient, but they're not going to be 100% in sync with what's in the best interest of the patient. You know, when you go to pharmaceuticals, they preach, we're saving patients, we're changing patients' lives, it's all about the patient. But when you have an uncapped bonus plan, you're not really delivering on that message. Interesting. So the incentive structure really, you know, it, it can actually be in, in sync, as you say, with the mission of the organization, or it can sort of run counter to that. That's really interesting. Yeah. I mean, just so you know, the, the bonus plan, you know, the average rep might make 80000 If you are 
you know, exceed meeting and exceeding your, your plans, you're looking at more like 300, 350,000. So, I mean, it's a game changer and there's no yeah, place for that when you sell the schedule to opioid. That's a, that's a huge difference. And, and you can see how people would be incentivized, you know, look the other way or cut a corner or, or try to maximize that as best that they can. In, in wrapping up here, Alex, I'm wondering what advice you have for listeners who may feel conflicted about their careers or about their work, you know, that they feel like they're in a little bit of an ethical dilemma, maybe not as a huge one as you found yourself in uh, with a, a regulated industry and, you know, the pressure for sales and, and so forth. But nonetheless, people can find themselves in, in other kinds of ethical jams. What advice do you have for them? Yeah, I mean, my advice is, you know, be comfortable with yourself before you expose yourself to others, you know, to really know who you are as a human being and what you stand for, the man you are today and the man you want to be moving forward or woman. And then you literally stick to that. I mean, literally write it down on a piece of paper, put it up on your mirror and look at it every day and ask yourself, am I being that person? And if the answer is no, you got to really think about walking. Now, I don't judge anyone. I understand there's bills that need to be paid. There's mortgages, there's rent, there's car payments. You t- I get it. But I have to believe that there is another job out there. And maybe I'm wrong, you know, depending on that particular person's circumstance. But, you know, if you could think about me and think about the fact that in hindsight, getting fired and being unemployed for a period of time in comparison to what I actually ended up dealing with consequentially, it's nothing. So try to look at the big picture. And if you know you're in a blurry situation, you know, you really got to try to find a way out. And, and that might take a little bit longer than you would like, but you got to be seeking that, that better opportunity that doesn't conflict with the type of person that you are and you want to continue to be. Because once you allow others to influence you or you subject yourself to those people who do not have your best interest at heart. Ask yourself, does this person have my best interest at heart? If the answer is no, then you have to take control of your life, you know, first and foremost, and then put everybody else, you know, secondary. Very good. I think that's a great way to phrase that. You know, is this best for them or is this best for you? So this has been great, Alec. I really appreciate your time and your candor. In sharing your story with us, yours is definitely a cautionary tale that I think we can all learn from. I wish you all the best in this new chapter of your career. And if you're listening and you'd like to know more about Alec Berlikoff and his book, Selling Hard Lessons Learned, that information as well as a transcript of this interview can be found in the show notes at businessconfidentialradio.com. Thank you so much for listening. Be sure to tell your friends about the show and leave a positive review. We'll be back next Thursday with another episode of Business Confidential Now. Until then, have a great day and an even better tomorrow.